Will you turn your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please? 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. <clears throat> we have some close friends of Kenny and his family here in the service this morning. Some are from out of town and from Lebanon, and uh, we're glad you're here. And I know that you'll be praying much for Brother Kenny and for God to touch him with strength and healing. It's an awful thing when a preacher gets sick. And uh, so you just pray for him. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> May we bow together in prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for everyone in the house of God this morning. We thank Thee for these wonderful songs that have blessed our hearts and the testimonies of each person. We thank You that when Jesus comes in, He gives us a positive, powerful testimony. When we're dwelling in Him and walking with Him, there is something that is stirring in our soul, the Word of God bubbling over into other people's lives. We pray that now the Holy Spirit will speak and will touch hearts, and someone within this place who has never been saved, may he come today trusting Christ. And others who are already God's children, may they rejoice in the Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In 2 Corinthians 5, we begin reading with verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that ye may have somewhat to answer them who glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober-minded, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they who live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. In verse 15, <clears throat> you see the three words that make up the royal banner that stands at the front of the auditorium today. Our young people placed that there as the theme for the Student Spring Spectacular, the SSS. Henceforth unto him. And in verse 15, if you will mark those three words, underline them in your Bibles, I want to speak to you this morning on the subject, why should we live henceforth unto Christ? Notice again that verse, and that he died for all, that they who live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Notice the negation, the negative. Henceforth, not unto themselves, but unto Him. These are like two sides of a coin. And the only way you can have one is to have the other. I have in my hand uh, a coin. And on one side is a picture of a man. On the other side, is the picture of a building. 
each of the coins, here's a quarter, it has an eagle on one side, and it has a picture of Washington on the other. Now, in order for this to be a valid quarter, there has to be the one on one side and the other on the other. <clears throat> if I had a quarter here this morning, and I said, this is a quarter, and on one side was this picture of Washington, and looked on the other, it was blank, could I spend that? Would that be a valid quarter? No, no, it wouldn't. It would be a fake. Now, sometimes our lives become a fake. Our lives are not really what God wants them to be. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, that he died for all, that they who, sh who live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him. When we live our lives unto ourselves, we cannot be living our lives unto Christ. And not until we come to a point in life where we're willing to say, not unto self, but unto him. Not till we get to that juncture can we really be what God wants us to be. And this is the theme of the message this morning. Henceforth unto him. Now Paul said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's speaking primarily to believers, to Christians. And he says, every one of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There are actually five judgments spoken of in the Scripture. One is the judgment of the believer's sins at Calvary. When Christ died on the cross, all of our sins were put on him. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. If your sins have not been placed on Christ, then you are still in your sins. And when you die, you will stand at the judgment of the great white throne, standing there to receive the things done in your own body, and you will be judged in that way. And you'll have no advocate. You'll have no attorney. You'll have no lawyer. You'll have to stand in judgment and trial for all of the sins of your life. But if you've been to Christ, and Christ has already, re you've received him, and he's received you, you've received the pardon for your sins, then your sins were pardoned in Christ. That's the first judgment. Secondly, there's a judgment that every one of us needs to face in his own life. We're, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged of God. We will not be judged of others. So God wants us to look into our own lives and judge ourselves to find, to have sort of a daily checkup, a weekly checkup, a check and balance in our own lives, checking out the things we do and why we do them and confessing our sins day by day. The Bible says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, thirdly, is the judgment seat of Christ. And this scripture says that everyone, every believer, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is no exception to that. Now, the lost will not appear at the judgment seat of Christ. They will be at the judgment of the great white throne at the end of the age when they stand alone, having rejected God's only remedy for sin. They will stand face to face to the king out at the end of the age at the right throne. 
but believers are going to have to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and Christ will be our advocate but there there will be an inquiry as to the life we lived whether we had some subtractions and some additions each of us needs to subtract from his life those things that would be offensive to Christ those things that would bring reproach on the holy name by which we're called even the name of Christ Jesus Paul said in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 I beseech you brethren by the mercies of God that you present your body a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God and so God wants us to subtract from our lives those things of disobedience those things of offense to the name of Christ in the Sunday school lesson we're studying during in during this time in Timothy in 1st Timothy 4:12, Paul said to that young man let no man despise thy youth but be thou an example of the believer in word in conversation and so on why would anybody despise youth why would anyone look at you and say oh that's just the way young people act when there's a big rock festival and there's dope and drugs and there's impurity and free sex somebody says well that's just the way young people are today that's just young people and so youth is despised because of their actions Paul said Christian young man Christian young woman let no man despise thy youth but instead of that be thou an example of the believer in word and conversation and all of those wonderful things be an example because at the judgment seat of Christ there will be an inquiry as to how you lived your life here's a believer it says yes I'm saved Jesus is in my life and I love him and I know he's my Savior and I know what he wants me to do I know he wants me to read the Bible and pray uh, but you know I just don't do that I don't have time I've got such a busy busy schedule I don't have time to read the Bible I don't have time to pray I don't have time to do all the things that I should do as a Christian one day you will stand at the great inquiry and the Spirit of God will inquire as to why you had not scheduled your time more wisely here's a person that says yes I'm saved Christ has come into my life and I knew it was God's will that I followed Jesus in believers baptism I knew that was God's will but I didn't do it I didn't think that was really important after all you don't have to be baptized to get to heaven you don't have to be baptized to be saved therefore I just decided not to do it I wanted to do what I wanted to do one day as a believer you will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and there will be an inquiry as to why you did what you wanted to do instead of what God wanted you to do now this is the whole background of what Paul is saying in verse 15 listen to this again and that he died for all that they who live should not henceforth live unto themselves not pleasers of the flesh not pleasers of self not doing what we want to do but henceforth we should live our lives unto Christ I want to suggest 
four reasons why we need to live our lives henceforth unto Christ. Four reasons. Number one, because of the mandate. Because of the mandate. We're under orders. We travel as a man who is under orders. I read the biography of Roosevelt in those last days. I think the book is called His Last Year or maybe His Last Hundred Days. I've forgotten the name of it. But in that book, the author makes this observation. Franklin Roosevelt seemed like to seem to be a man in a hurry. He realized he had not long. He died in April 1945. Just a few months after he had been elected for the fourth term as President of the United States of America, the only man to be elected four years. And the author, the, author, the, the biographical author said, he seemed to be a man in a hurry. Now you and I, who know Christ as our personal Savior, we're under a mandate. We're under orders from the King. And these orders need to be carried out. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have done, I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, Go. In Mark, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Luke, ye are witnesses of these things. In John, as the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. In Acts, and ye shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the world. This past week we had the Student Spring Spectacular, and in the afternoons our young people went out fishing for men. Let me ask you something. At what age does this mandate become obligatory to us? Have you ever thought of that? How many in this room are nine years of age and over, nine to 12? You're nine years of age and, and, and yet you're under 12. Lift your hands. Anyone here? Many of those are in the junior service this morning. All right, lift your hands. Listen to me. Give me your eyes a moment. I want your attention. How many of you in this room are, you're 12, but you're not yet 20? You're in that age bracket. Lift your hands. All right. How many of you in this room are 20, but you're not yet 30? Lift your hands. How many of you are 30, but you're not yet 80? Lift your hands. How many of you are 80, but you're not yet 100? Lift your hands. All right, we've got some of those. All right, now listen. I'm speaking to all of these age brackets. I want to ask you something. When does this commission, the mandate of the master, become obligatory to you as a believer? Does it become obligatory when you're 80? Or when you're 50? Or when you're 30? Or when you're 20, or when you're 12, or when you're 9. When does it become your mandate? Does anybody have an answer to that? When? When? Anybody? When you're saved. Just like that. The mandate becomes yours the moment you get saved. It's, it's not a respecter of age. It has to do with your relationship with Jesus Christ. And this henceforth unto Him has to do with your relationship to Christ. It has nothing to do with your age.
And so when a person is born into the family of God, he becomes God's child by faith, whether he's eight years old or 80, whether he is nine or 10, whether he is 12 or 20, it matters not. We become under the mandate of the master when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. Therefore, when Paul said, henceforth, not unto ourselves, but unto him who loved us and gave himself for us, that mandate is obligatory upon us the moment we give our life to Jesus Christ, that moment. And this is number, reason number one why I would say the theme of our lives needs to be henceforth unto him. Number two, because of the multitude, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. 57,000 people in Warren County. On any given Sunday, 10,000 or fewer are in anybody's Sunday school. There are multitudes in the valley of decision. When Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John said, let's build three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Let's just stay up here. My Lord, this is wonderful. I love this. Let's just stay up on this mountaintop experience. This is fantastic. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, let's go down into the valley because the people are there, down there. At Ridgecrest, North Carolina, on that great white building that used to be the tabernacle, the chief tabernacle where everybody met at that great conference center. There, are, there is engraved on the cornerstone of that building these words, from this mountaintop of vision and inspiration, we Southern Baptists would carry the message of Jesus into every valley of human need. Down in the valley where the people are, there are multitudes, multitudes, and they're in a valley of decision. And because of the mandate of the Master, our lives need to be henceforth unto Christ. As for me and my house, said an Old Testament man, we will serve the Lord because of the multitudes. But you know, multitudes don't mean much to us unless they're translated into individuals. A person here, a person here, a person here. During this SSS, we went out in the afternoons to visit. Some have said, well, it's questionable whether young people know how to visit whether they ought to visit. Well, I don't know how many families have come to our church and said, you know, the reason I came to Glendale is because some young person knocked on my door and they showed an interest in my spiritual life and I just wanted to come and see what was going on. Friday afternoon, two of our young ladies, matter of fact, they weren't even from Bowling Green. They were from another city, another area over in the mountains, and they were here, and they went out visiting in a strange city, teenagers, and uh, they were over on a certain street in this city, knocking on doors, just going house to house. They didn't know anybody, not a soul, didn't know anybody, just knocked house to house, went into the certain house. There was a dear, precious lady in her 50s, and she needed Jesus, and those two teenagers introduced her to Jesus Christ, and she gave her heart to Christ.
You see, that was the first time they ever got in their home. And the teenager at the SSS banquet Friday night said, that's the first time in my whole life I ever won anybody to Jesus Christ. Isn't that a thrill? There are multitudes in the Valley of Decision. There are hundreds and hundreds of others just waiting for us to come. Henceforth unto Him, because of the multitudes, because of those who need Christ. Thirdly, because of the multiplication, because of the multiplication of our lives, we can only live 70 years here, maybe 80, at the most 90 or 100 or 120. I think Mr. Stevenson, Mr. Stevens is still driving his car, isn't he? About 110 years old or whatever he is. But that's unusual. That's unusual. Praise God for that dear man. We've, we've, we've had some outstanding uh, older people coming to our church. I think of Ms. Ragland who used to come when she was 95 years old and she came Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That's unusual, isn't it? Most of us just have a few years to give Christ. 50 years, 70 years, 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, I don't know how long. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to take your life and hide it and say, now, Lord, I knew that you were an asture man and you sowed where you didn't reap and you didn't know what you were doing, so you gave me a few talents and I'm going to use these things for myself. Or are you going to invest what you have on the altar? Give it to God. I think of two people who lived on the same block. They were friends of mine when I was growing up. A little, I was a little young boy on Virginia Avenue in Louisville. There was an older lady, I'll never forget her. Her name was Ms. Powers, and she had white hair. And uh, she always had an interesting house. And in that house, she sometimes, sometimes would ask me to come in her house and look. And she had uh, bins full of seeds in her house. Now, the outside, there was, there was no grass to cut. It was barren. There were no flowers or anything. Just, you know, just uh, no bushes, nothing. But inside, she had all kinds of seeds and bins of seeds. And, and she'd have little, little things, little packets of seeds. She'd sent off here and sent off there and sent off somewhere else and gotten all these seeds, and they were all there. And, and she showed them to me. She said, oh, look at all this, just a wealth of seeds. And that really impressed me. Down the street, I used to mow a lawn and try to take care of this garden in this person's place. That particular person where I went, they didn't have bins of seeds inside. They didn't have a whole lot of packets of seeds that they'd sent off from everywhere and they were all inside. But out in that yard, you never saw such a beautiful yard in your life. Beautiful green grass growing everywhere and lovely flowers and bushes and everything. What was the difference? The difference was simply this. That one lady had all those seeds and she hoarded them up. The other lady had all those seeds and she invested them and planted them. And all oh, the beauty and the multiplication of her life. Your life is like that and my life is like that. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And if we hoard up what we've got and we save it for ourselves and we invest it inwardly and we save it, we will ultimately lose it. But if we will lose our lives for the gospel and for Christ's sake and invest ourselves in the lives of others, 
there's no end to what we'll do. How many of you, well, probably around here, most of you, have ever heard of Ed Kimball? Lift your hands. If you ever heard of Ed Kimball, lift them high. I want to see you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, about eight people. You'll remember him when I tell you about him. How many of you have ever heard of D.L. Moody? Lift your hands. Just look, almost everybody. Do you know what happened? Ed Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. Nobody ever heard of him. But he taught a class of 17-year-old boys. And he used to go out and get them in on the streets of Boston. And he would bring them to his class. And when he'd get them in there, he'd teach them the Word of God. And he had a young boy in there named Dwight. He said one day, turn to Genesis. And Dwight went way over here, looking over here somewhere. And all the boys laughed at him. And, and Ed quietly slipped over and opened his Bible to Genesis. One day, Dwight wasn't there. Now, Ed was a wise Sunday school teacher. He didn't wait till next Saturday to go. He went on Monday to find out where Dwight was. And on Monday, he went down to a shoe store where Dwight was working. And he started to go in. The devil said, don't go in there. You'll embarrass him. And so he went on down the street, and, and, and the Lord said, you ought to go back in there and talk to him. And so he went back to start to go in the shop, and the devil said, don't go in there. You'll just embarrass that young man. Well, he's just 17. Don't go in there. Wait till he gets home or some other time. And so he went on down the street, and the Lord said, wait a minute, you better go back. You better go back. And so he went back, and he went into that store, and he found Dwight in the back of the store. And Ed had a little Bible. He opened his Bible and showed him from the Bible how to give his heart to Jesus. Dwight, 17 years old, invited Jesus to come into his heart that day. The next Sunday, he went to Sunday school. The next Sunday, he went to Sunday school. The next Sunday, he went. The next Sunday, he went, and on and on. And after a year or so, he moved out of Boston and went to Chicago. He got a store. He got, he got a, a job in a store, shoe store. <clears throat> but he got so interested and involved in going out on the streets and finding precious people to try to bring them to Jesus. He rented a pew in a Presbyterian church. He went out and got all the dirty urchins he could find all over the city and brought them in, set them down in that, class, in that, in that, Sunday, in that church. One day, finally, the usher came. He had about five pews filled with those kids. And the usher came and said, look, look, Dwight, you can't do that in, here, in this church anymore. Why, there's not room for all these adults. You can't have all those little kids in here. Uh, they're making noise, and you just can't have them. And you get them out of here. And so Dwight went across, and he rented a store building. He put all of his little kids in that building. And after a while, that thing began to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow until he had a 1,000 boys and girls in the largest Sunday school in America in Chicago. Who were they? Wealthy? Influential? No, no. Just dirty urchin kids from all over the streets of Chicago nobody loved, nobody cared about. How many ever heard of Ed Kimball? Not many. But Ed Kimball multiplied his life because he invested it in young Dwight, who in turn got saved and went out, not only to win those little children to Jesus, not only to make an impact on the city of Chicago, but to shake continents toward Christ, to say to a world, God loves Dwight Moody won to the Lord, Ed Kimball was involved in because of the multiplication of his life and investment. Henceforth unto him, 
If you want your life to live on into the ages, live it as unto Christ. In 1809, Jefferson Davis was born. I believe it was 1809. In 1837, D.L. Moody was born. In 1899, Jefferson Davis died and D.L. Moody died, both the same year, almost the same month. Down here at Fairview, Kentucky, where Jefferson Davis was born, the first and only president of the Confederacy, there's a great big monument, poured concrete. Until a few years ago, it was the largest monument in the world, I mean in America, the largest poured concrete monument in America. And, and they did this so that the world would remember Jefferson Davis. A few years ago, I went to Northfield, Massachusetts. My mother and I walked up a little mound, and we stood by a chained-in area where there's a little tombstone, not even as high as this pulpit. And on that tombstone, it says, D.L. Moody, 1837-1899, He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What, preacher? You mean there's no great big monument to Moody? No, no, they didn't need it. They didn't need a big monument to him. The whole world remembers Moody. Everywhere you go in the Christian world, in the civilized world, the life of D.L. Moody has made an investment because of the multiplication of his life. He invested it in people. Jefferson Davis, I understand he was a Christian. He invested his life in a cause that was destined to be lost. In order for his memory to be perpetuated, they built a great big monument so everybody would remember him. How about you? Henceforth unto him, because of the multiplication, last of all, because of the millennium, because we've got a heaven to face one day, and it's not all over here. We're one day going to be face to the king, and we'll be with him forever and forever. I'm talking to you who believe in Jesus, you who know him as your personal Savior, and I appeal to you today to henceforth live your life unto Christ, not unto yourself, but unto him who loved you and gave himself for you, because one day you're going to stand with him forever and forever, and in that wonderful city of God, all the trials and the difficulties and the problems and the plagues of earth will be a thing of history in the past. There'll be time to rest then, There'll be a time for peace. There'll be a time for all of the desires of your soul to be met. The black people used to sing, sooner we'll be done with the troubles of the world, with the troubles of the world, with the troubles of the world. There's going to be a day when all of the difficulties and the insecurities and the uneven things will be straightened out. That's over there, not here. What is your life really geared toward? Is it geared toward getting people ready to dwell with Christ forever and forever? And I want to guarantee you when you do that, that you make better citizens of this country because they're citizens of that country. And it is impossible for a person to be a good citizen of heaven without also being a kind, godly, loving citizen in this country. May we pray. <clears throat> every head bowed, every eye closed. There are two classes of people in this auditorium this morning with our heads bowed and eyes closed. There are people who are saved. There are people who are lost. There are people who are headed for heaven. There are people who are headed for hell. Which group are you in? 
I want to ask you this morning if you'd be willing to say, Lord, I want to live henceforth unto Christ, not unto myself. I want to yield myself to Jesus Christ today. Would you do that? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit of God will speak to every individual here. May this be God's hour of victory, God's day when someone will come and say, I want my life to be a multiplication. I want it to be lived under the mandate of the Master. And I want to so order my life that there will not be waste, not just be wasted years, but years that count for Jesus. Pray that someone will be saved today. Someone else will come to know the love of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. May we stand, please. Everyone standing, we're going to sing God's hymn of invitation. I'd like to request that no one leave during the singing of this hymn. This is God's invitation. And I want to ask if you're willing this morning to say, henceforth unto him. My life shall be lived unto Christ from now on. I want to take hands off myself. I'm not going to save my life. I want to lose it in Christ. I want Christ to be king and victor. I want to yield myself to him. Would you come? If you're saved, perhaps you have never obeyed Christ in believer's scriptural baptism. You need to come this morning. Put your life on the altar for God and say, Lord, here I am. I'll do what you want me to do. If you're saved, maybe you don't have a church home and you need a church home in the city of Bowling Green, I want to urge you to come to Christ. Make this your church home. Stand for the Lord. Take account for Him. And if you're not saved, you've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, would you today turn away from sin, turn by faith to Jesus? Would you do it? God help you to do it for Christ's sake. While we wait, while we pray, while we begin to sing, who will be the first to step out for the King? Coming right now, quickly. Will you do it for Jesus' sake?